0: It is really sweet to be with you all this morning. And uh, I want to say this too. um, We're blessed to have Mandy Mosley lead us. And uh, lead us not just with her vocal gifts or musical gifts, but with her heart. And shepherd us and take us places in our worship. So I just wanted to, to mention that. We're grateful to God for Mandy. Well, I want to uh, welcome you if you are new, particularly if you're new to fellowship. Uh, We hope that you've already been greeted this morning, maybe in the lobby as you came in. Um, I'd love to get to know you. I know the rest of our staff would love to get to know you, so don't be shy if you're new. It's one of the things that we're praying that God would continue to develop in this body is a true community of people who know each other, people who love, love each other. So we're glad you're here this morning. Uh, just a brief announcement, uh, for those of you that were here last week, you received a bag as you left, and your instructions were to fill that up, and it was going to go to GraceWorks Ministry, to leave it behind your car this morning. Maybe you came in and you saw this bag sitting behind some of the cars, and you thought, oh, I forgot to fill the bag. It's never too late. So what I encourage you to do is, even when you go home today, just, just fill that bag up, and you can deliver it right to GraceWorks. Um, you can Google them. They're easy to find and drop that off sometime this week. That'd be a blessing. Or if you want to bring it back to church next week, uh, just bring it to one of our hospitality volunteers, and we'll make sure it gets to GraceWorks. So thank you for what you've done. The generosity that some of you have put into this uh, is meaningful. And again, it's a chance for us to live out this value of generosity. And as, as Mandy said so well, we don't give because God needs our stuff. We give because we're grateful for what he's done, and we give because we have an opportunity to give. We've been blessed so we can bless other people. And so uh, thank you for those of you that have participated in that. We're in this journey of Abraham, and as I was reading the passage that we're going to study this morning, the passage that was already read, what I was thinking about is this is a pivotal moment in the story, not just of Abraham, this is a pivotal moment in the history of mankind, a a pivotal moment in the story of redemption, if you want to think about it that way, as we read about from Genesis to Revelation. And I thought about the idea that all stories have these moments in them, two or three or four um, moments in these stories where something happens, something changes, something takes place, where everything else sort of revolves around it, everything else sort of pivots around these moments in the stories. And I was reminded of a story that I watched recently in the movie theater. Uh, Jody and I went to go see the movie Interstellar. And I won't ask you to raise your hand if you've seen that movie, but it is one of the better movies I've seen in a long time. So it may not be for all of you, but for me, there was just something about that movie that I connected to. You know, it's this big epic space exploration and, you know, they hit, the world is like, you know, uh, the, the survival of the world is hinging on the opportunity and, and, uh, that this man has. And then there's the father-daughter connection and I was, I was really, really into this movie. But the problem was, before we went into the theater, I'd bought one of those large drinks. And they, by the way, they trick you into buying the large because it's the one they give you the refill for. You know? Of course, you don't need a refill. If you're going to drink that 68-ounce, whatever it is, you know, drink, you don't need a refill. Well, I was just into this movie. I was drinking my drink and in this movie. And at some point in time, I realized I am not going to make it through this movie without having to go take a break. The problem was I didn't want to miss anything of this movie. And particularly, I didn't want to miss a pivotal moment of the movie. So I thought to myself, okay, you know, I know a little thing about stories. I'm a storyteller, and I'm going to be able to, to gauge when, when there's not going to be a pivotal moment because all stories kind of have this structure. So I waited until what I thought a pivotal moment had just happened, you know, a big part in the action. I thought, this is my moment because what's going to happen now is it's going to die down a little bit, you know, and then it'll build back up to the next pivotal moment. So I snuck out. I made my, my exit as quickly as I could, and I came back. And I think, I mean, I only missed about two and a half minutes of this movie. I was quick. I sat down next to my wife. And I was like, what would I miss? You know? And she said, oh, I can't even explain it. <laughs> I thought, oh, great. Now I'm not going to have a clue what's happening in the rest of this movie. It was like I was a whole different movie now because this pivotal moment had happened. And I had to go back you know, later and re-watch the movie and figure out what happened because I missed a pivotal moment. Now, Genesis 12, 1 through 4, is one of those pivotal moments in this book. In this big story, Genesis to Revelation, if you're out to the restroom, Genesis 1 through 4, the rest of the Bible is not going to make total sense. It's not going to make complete sense. So we have this opportunity this morning, even as we begin this journey with Abraham along this epic, you know, leave your homeland, leave your father's house and go into the land that I'll promise you, the land that I'll show you. We have this moment this morning to understand what this means, not just in the redemption, redemptive history, but what this means for you and your story and me and my story as God is unpacking it and unfolding it. You see, we actually fit into the big picture. Abraham's pivotal moment is related to us. And so what I want you to see as we look at this pivotal moment in the Bible this morning is I want you to see not just the epic scope of it, but I want you to see the personal scope of it for you. And that's where we're going to build to this morning. Because what I know, and I, I don't know all of you yet, but what I know is you're bringing in some things into this room. Some of you are, are bringing in some joy and just relief this morning as you kind of worship. Some of you are bringing in a heaviness of heart. You're bringing in pain. Some of you are overwhelmed. Some of you just aren't feeling anything at all. You know, you're just sort of callous. The, the, the routine of life has just sort of pounded the energy out of you, pounded the passion out of you. And so this morning, as we look at Abraham's pivotal moment my hope and my prayer is that it will ignite in us something deep. That we will once again, as Mandy's already been leading us, that we will take a step. That we will have our own pivotal moments. That there would be something that would stir in us to trust God more because His promises are true. Now, to get there there's a couple of things that we need to know. And, and these two things are sort of background in the text, that if we're not explicit with them, you may miss them. The first thing is you need to know the big picture story, the plot of the whole Bible. So I'm going I'm to explain that once again, even before we get to Genesis 12. But then when we get to Genesis 12, what you need to know, and this will come out in the text, is you need to know something about Abraham's culture, his moment in the story, if you will. And you need to know some historical background. You need to know some cultural background. And some of you really dig this. You know, you get into it, right? The you know, intellectual part of your brain gets stirring. Others of you are like, all right, well, I'll just sleep during that part and then wake me up when you get to the application. But I don't want you to miss it because it's related and it's really important that you fully understand that. So number one, big picture plot. Number two, Abraham's culture and some of the things that we'll see in the text that you need to understand to fully see how his moment fits in with the big picture. So let's start with the big picture, kind of the plot of the Bible. Lloyd did a wonderful job last week of walking us through Genesis 1 through 11. And remember, he kind of he gave us those, those marks, and it starts with creation, then it goes to fall, and then it goes, you know, someone will have to teach me the hand motions, because I missed it. I just listened to it online. So there's creation, there was fall, and there was flood, and then there was babel, and that sets us up for the moment that we are today. So a lot of history has taken place when we get to Abraham. But what I think is important to know is where the story's going long term. And this is the way, as I've been thinking about the plot of the Bible or the big picture story of the Bible, this is kind of how I've been thinking about it. The Bible begins in a garden and ends in a city. Genesis 1, 2, and 3 in the garden. Revelation 21, 22, the last two chapters of the Bible in a city. And there's a lot that the garden has in common with the city. It's actually interesting. If you go and read Revelation 21, a lot of the imagery from Genesis 1 and 2 is there, right? And I don't mean imagery like it's not real, but I mean there's the same ideas and the same concepts and the same objects even that are going to exist in the city. There's a river, you know, there's a tree of life. There's all these things that bring you back to the garden. And I think that's intentional because God's intent in the garden, his original intent for creation, is going to be the same as his final intent in the city. And here's how I'd summarize God's intent for his creation. It's the people of God living in the place of God with full access to the presence of God. People of God in the place of God with full access to the presence of God, living in full communion, unhindered, face-to-face with God. That's what Adam and Eve experienced before the fall in the garden. That's what we will experience Those of us who put our faith in Jesus Christ in the city for eternity. Those same three things. So keep those three things in mind. The people of God and the place of God with access to the presence of God. Now think about what's happening prior to Genesis 12. No defined people of God at this point in history. right? Last week Lloyd said that after Babel, God scattered them. Right, So he confused their languages and cultures. And in, and in Genesis chapter 11, we, we get this long you know, this table of nations. All the nations are there and they've been scattered. They're not worshiping Yahweh anymore for the most part. They've begun to worship all kinds of gods. It's sort of a polytheistic society. It's a polytheistic culture that Abram was born into, that Abram was raised into. So there's no defined people of God. There's also no defined place of God. Ever since the people of God had been cast out of Eden... Because of sin, there's no geographic spot on the earth that God would say, This is my place, this is where I'm leading my people. Not yet, not yet. That comes later. And there's no real access to the presence of God. Right? The the Holy Spirit, as we know it now, that indwells us believers, that that was not given yet in this sense. And a lot of history had to happen before that would take place. But not only that, there was no place of worship, there was no access to God's presence. No people, no place, no presence. Abram enters the story at this particular moment in time. In fact, I'd invite you to think about Abraham's moment in time this way. Before there was the law, before there was the nation of Israel, before there were prophets, before there were psalms, before there was the temple, before there was the church, before even there was a man named Abraham, there was a man named Abram. That's the setting that our story takes place in. And as we read the text, I want to call to your attention two key words. One's actually two words. But two key ideas in this text that if you fully understand these, it's going to unlock this passage for you and help you understand how this pivotal moment fits into the big picture. So let's look at it. Genesis chapter 12 Just beginning in verse 1. Let's only read verse 1 to begin with. Now the Lord. By the way, you notice, if you ever notice sometimes in your Bible, Lord is all caps. Every letter is caps. Uh, Most English translations use that as a tool that that's a translation of the proper name for Yahweh. Right? The unpronounceable name in Hebrew culture, Yahweh. This is the the title of, of the one true God. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. The first key word, it's actually two words, but the key idea that I want to bring out for you is the idea of the father's house. The father's house. This is a, a critical concept to understand in Hebrew culture. The words in Hebrew would be bet, B-E-T, of A V, Bait of, the house of the father, the father's house. Now, you're thinking of maybe a single structure. I want to change that image in your mind. In this culture, there would have been a compound. It would have been like the patriarch living in his home, and then surrounding him would have been his relatives. The clan would have been living together. And they formed together an identifiable unit that was sort of separate from the government, that was sort of its own responsibility to provide for one another, and the key responsibility rests in the patriarch. This was a day and age where there weren't governmental programs, there weren't even true nations, you know, patriotism as we thought of it back then. It was, for the most part, these collections of these bait of these father's house, these clans. And the way this worked was you'd have a patriarch and his wife— and his children. Now, if his children were grown, his sons would live at the family house, or the Beit Av, the family compound, with their wives and their children. They would stay there. If the daughters were grown, if they were unmarried, they would live with the father in the father's house. But if they were married, they would join the Beit Av of their husband's family. So they would literally leave, and they would join this other clan, this other father's house. So what you had on these compounds was you had a family unit and a structure that depending on how long the patriarch lived and which back in this time, the the length of lives were extended. These could grow to be significant places, significant numbers of people that were living in these father's house on this compound. Now, why does this matter so much? I want you to see the progression in the text of what God calls Abram to. Look back at verse one. Go forth from your country. That was just sort of the idea of land. Right? That, that, wasn't, um, that wouldn't have had a lot of pull necessary, necessarily to Abraham it, it, at least as much as the next thing that God says. So not only from your country but from your relatives. Relatives would have been the extended family so multiple kind of added together sort of forming like a little bit of a larger clan and then God goes even deeper he cuts to the heart of Abram's identity when he says leave your father's house. That structure that you've been depending on, Abram. Now, what we know about Abram's father, Terah, is that Terah dies in Haran, and Abram keeps going to Canaan. And there's a sense that God is calling Abram, I want you to leave what you've become comfortable with, and I want you to follow me. I want you to go to this new land. I want you to establish something different, something new in a land which I will show you. And it gets more interesting and to me, more importantly, fascinating as you continue to read. I want to read verses 5 through 7 and then point out something about the land that God was taking Abram to. Verse 5, Abram took Sarah his wife and Lot his nephew and all their possessions which they had accumulated and the persons which they had acquired in Haran and they set out for the land of Canaan thus they came to the land of Canaan Abram passed through the land as far as the site of Shechem to the oak of Moreh now the Canaanite was then in the land the Lord appeared to Abram and said to your descendants I will give this land so he built an altar there to the Lord who appeared to him Let's talk about the land for just a minute. I wanted you to see this literally on a map. So I have a map to show you. If we could put that map on the screen. There are three primary areas in the ancient Near East that you need to sort of figure out in your head where they are geographically for this story to make sense. One is Mesopotamia. It's the cradle of civilization. Mesopotamia literally means the land between the rivers. And the rivers there, the Tigris, the Euphrates rivers, this is where Abram was born, where he grew up. Now, he was born and lived majority of his early life in Ur, which is down in the south part, a great important city in Mesopotamia. But at one point in time, when his father's still alive, his father Terah and, and Abram and the rest of his clan leave Ur and they go up to Haran, which is kind of on the edge of Mesopotamia, at the north. And then it's from Haran that God tells Abram, I want you to go into the land of Canaan. Now, Canaan there is in the middle of the screen. That's the holy land. That's the land that God is promising to Abraham and his descendants. And essentially, Canaan is such an important land, not just because it's the promised land, but because it's this in-between land between Mesota- Mesopotamia and Egypt, which is the third major geographical area. And Egypt will come into play next week as uh, Abraham's story leads him. To Egypt. But in between these big superpowers, Egypt and then Mesopotamia, which you know, the, the Assyrians were from there, the Babylonians were from there, they would cross between the two to fight each other, to trade with one another. And so Canaan became this pass-through, this go-between land. It's one of the reasons why historically that piece of land has been so fought over and still is to this day. So this is the land that God was calling Abram to go to. Now, land back then was passed down from family to family. And so the author of this text, who we believe was Moses, goes out of his way to mention, now the Canaanite was then in the land. And essentially what God is telling to Abram when he takes him down into this land is he says, this land is not actually owned by the Canaanite. It is my land. I am the true patriarch of this land. And this is the land that I will give to your descendants. Note that he doesn't say that he will give the land to Abraham. He says it will give him to, it will give the land to his descendants. Interestingly, the only piece of land Abraham ever owned, technically speaking, was his grave and the grave of his wife, Sarah. Abraham was living according to a promise. Something God promised him that he never actually experienced on his own. So what's going on here? Why do I go out of my way to sort of explain the bait of and the patriarchal system and the importance of the land and what God was calling Abram to? It's because of this. Abram was himself a patriarch, right? He was called to sort of um, be the the new patriarch after his father Terah died. But what God is essentially doing when he calls him to leave his Beit Av, his father's house, is he's saying, I will be your patriarch, Abram. I will be your father. You will live in my house. You will live according to my care. I will provide for you. I will be your governmental system. I will be your provision. You take your family and you submit them to my provision for you and you see what will happen. So as the biblical history continues past the life of Abraham, what does Israel call Yahweh? Father. Right? That's how we pray today. Our Father who is in heaven. There's this recognition that Yahweh's doing something new. He's picking Abraham and his descendants to sort of be his chosen people. And he refers to them and responds to them, father, child, patriarch, children. As a side note, there's no indication that Abraham or Abram back then did anything special to deserve this choice. As far as we know, he was living just like the rest of his culture, probably before God showed up, praying to gods who weren't gods. Trusting in gods who weren't actually gods. He did not earn God's attention by his righteousness. And so later in Genesis 15, which we'll get to in a couple of months, it says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. So kind of the most you could say about Abram at this point in his life is that God looked down and he saw a man in Abram that he, God, knew would believe him. And that was enough. So God chooses Abram. He calls him out. Abram's part in the relationship is very simple. S- someone tell me. I'm going to ask you to interact with me just for a moment. Look at verse 1 and let me ask you, what was Abram's part of this relationship? What's the command that you see in Genesis 12, verse 1? Go forth. Or, or go, depending on your translation. That's the only command that God gives to Abram. Go forth. Go forth. Go forth. In other words, he was being told to leave that safe family structure that you've been accustomed to, even that family structure that, that you've pictured yourself, you know, leading in this land of Mesopotamia. I want you to leave it. I want you to leave your comfort zone. I want you to go submit to the higher patriarch. I'm calling you to something new, something different. It was a call to trust, a call to believe, but not simple intellectual assent. This was Risky. This was Abram, go forth and put all your eggs in my basket. What was God's part of the relationship? Well, if Abram was called to go forth... God's part of the relationship's a lot more extensive. I want us to look at the promises in verses 2 and 3, but you can just summarize all the promises of God with this single word, blessing, and that's the second word. So the first word was Father's house. The first idea was Father's house. The second word I want us to focus on is blessing, blessing. I want you, if you have a pen or pencil handy, to underline or circle every time in verses 2 or 3 you see that word, that root word, bless, blessing, blessed. If you count them up. There's five in two verses. Such an important concept. Now, in our culture, when we say, hear the word blessing, we kind of just think of ourselves as sort of like, I wish you well, right? And, you know, bless you. We, we even use it when someone sneezes. You know, bless you, bless you. I, I don't know what that means when someone sneezes. We say, bless you. I, I, You know, I wish you well. Don't get sick. I mean, I don't know what that means. It's just some kind of a ethereal up there kind of idea of well wishes. In Hebrew culture, blessing was tangible. It was stuff. When the patriarch said, I wish to bless you, he was about to give you land or supplies or protection or food. He was about to give you something substantial. And this is the word that God is using with So in the ancient Near East culture, you could say that the patriarch's power of blessing was the difference between life and death. To be blessed by the patriarch meant you were going to be provided for, well fed, and you were going to have your own piece of land. But to be cursed by the patriarch meant that you were going to be cut off. And unless you could attach yourself to a different father's house, to a different bait of, you weren't going to make it. In this society. So blessing and curses, life and death in this society. So what were the blessings that God promised to Abram? Verse 2, I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you shall be a blessing. God is saying uh, to Abram, you will receive blessing, i.e. life, sustenance, provision from me. And he's saying you will receive so much of that from me that you will be able to bless others. It will overflow out of you, Abram. Uh, I wrote down the lyrics of one of the songs we sang earlier because it fits this so well. This is my prayer in the harvest. When favor and providence flow, I know I'm filled in order to be emptied again. The seed I've received, I will sow. Abram is going to be blessed so that he could be a blessing. Verse 3, I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. God is saying, I will so closely associate my presence with you, myself with you, that your friends will be my friends, your enemies will be my enemies. And then there's this beautiful but somewhat mysterious phrase at the end of verse 3. Take a look at it. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Just bracket that for a minute, set it aside, we're going to come back to it. But it's this idea that Abraham will be a vehicle for God to do something remarkable that will touch every family, not just his descendants. All right, so I want to take you back to people, place, presence. I want you to see how God is starting to build this in the redemptive story. There's now the promise of a people. There will be Abram's descendants, that was, there is now a promise of a place. It is the land of Canaan between Mesopotamia and Egypt. There is now a promise of the presence of God as God is saying, I will relate to you as your patriarch, as your father. And by the way, I want, to, I want to just show you down here in verse 8. Let me read it and you can follow along. Then he, Abraham, or Abram, proceeded from there to the mountain on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord. And here's the phrase, he called upon the name of the Lord. In Hebrew, that means he worshipped. Now, you, you can't worship a god that you don't have a relationship with. To worship means sort of saying, you're the one that I'm going to trust. You're the one that I'm going to talk to when things are hard. You're the one that I'm going to throw my burdens down upon. You're the one that I'm going to give to in my offering. You're the one that I'm going to thank when I receive blessing from you. You're the one that I'm going to depend on. There's this presence. There's this communion now between Abram and God because God has called him. Now, where does our story intersect? I hope you caught it. It's in that phrase I asked you to set aside for a minute. Right. Are, are you one of the families of the whole earth? Yes, you know. Um, some of you in this room have a Hebrew or a Jewish cultural background. Most of us do not. Most of us are what the Bible would refer to as Gentiles, Gentiles. And so when we read the Old Testament and we hear the promises to the nation of Israel, there's a sense that we're like, but what about us, right? Well, you got to keep reading. you got to keep reading until you get to Jesus. Because from Abraham's line, one of his descendants that God was promising him right here in Genesis chapter 12 comes, of course, Jesus, who was Messiah or Savior. Messiah in Greek, Greek is Christ. We call ourselves Christians. Right, So we're connected, even in our title Christians, we're connected to Abraham through the promise of his seed, this Messiah that came from the nation of Israel. And Abraham, in a sense, if you think about his story, he actually previews what Jesus would later do. He leaves his home according to the call of the Father. He goes to this place where his Father leads him. He trusts him. He, he sort of risks everything in order to create a new people. This is what Jesus does. And I want to turn, in fact, I want to invite you, if you would, just for a minute, turn to Galatians 3. Turn to Galatians 3. I want you to see this with your own eyes because Paul grabs on to the Abraham story when he's explaining the Jesus story. So I want to read just a few verses in Galatians chapter 3 and you follow along. Paul's going to go back to this very moment in in, uh, Genesis 12. Galatians 3, beginning in verse 6. Even so, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned reckoned to him as righteousness. That's that verse from Genesis 15 that we'll get to. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons and daughters, by the way, of Abraham. The scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, all the nations will be blessed in you. There it is, Genesis 12, 3. So then, those who are of faith are blessed, important word, blessed, with Abraham, the believer. Skip down to verse 14. In order that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith, Go back to the people of God and the place of God, living with full access to the presence of God. Paul is saying that because of this promise that Jesus fulfilled, the people of God are now all those who are of faith, all those who have believed. That's the people of God. Now, is, is, is Israel and the Hebrew people still significant and important in God's economy? Absolutely. That's not this morning's message, but I want you to see that there's a sense that we are all, Gentiles, Jews alike, who are calling upon the name of the Lord, Jesus Christ, are now the people of God. We are the people of God. The presence of God is now experienced by us through the Spirit. Paul's talking about that. All who believe in Jesus Christ receive the Holy Spirit, literally the presence of God in us. Now you may be wondering, well, what about the place? What about the place of God? That's where we get to in Revelation 21 and 22. When literally, as John was seeing this vision, he said, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, and the city of God is coming down, and it rests upon the new earth, and this new Jerusalem will be the dwelling place of the people, the people of God, living in the place of God with full access to the presence of God. This is the promise. Now, some of it we experience now. A lot of it we wait for. It's coming. It's later, just like for Abraham. Is coming, is later. This is how Jesus begins this, he, he fulfills this big picture of the Bible, all these things coming together. And by the way, I love this phrase that Jesus gives his disciples in the Last Supper. He says this, in my father's house, Beit Av, there are many dwelling places. I go there to prepare a place for you so that where I am, you will be. So you and I and all those who put our faith in Jesus will have a dwelling place on the family compound, right? We will be gathered together in the bait of of the Father. He is our true patriarch, our capital P Father. This is what we call on. He will provide for us eternally. He will protect us eternally. He will minister to us and bless us eternally as we exist in full communion with him. Men and women, this is our promise. This is our hope. This is what we sojourn toward. Like our father, lowercase f, Father Abraham. And so this is how that little Sunday school song can become true. Father Abraham had many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. Right arm, left arm. Repeat again, 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 ad nauseum. Now, I want to leave you and me, to be honest, with a few challenges, a few lessons, a call to action. Because the moment that you're bringing in this morning is, it's, it's ripe. Right? Whether you brought in joy, whether you brought in struggle, whether you brought in frustration, whether you brought in numbness, it is sort of a canvas. That moment you brought in is a canvas that God's word wants to paint on, wants to shape, wants to mold And the only way that can happen is if you see your story intersecting with the big story. And if you see Abraham's pivotal moment in his life begin to sort of be birthed in you. So how do you get there? Well, three things. Three things that I think we need to think about. And I think these three things will stay with us throughout the whole series. In other words, I think the whole story of Abraham largely comes down to these three things. And and so I sort of see this morning's message as introduction part two. And I want to set some themes that we'll come back to throughout the series. Number one, Abraham's journey is our journey. And I hope you see that. That command that God gave Abram go forth is your command too. I'm not saying that God has called every person in this room to move and, you know, leave your homeland, so to speak, of Franklin, Tennessee, or Spring Hill, or Brentwood, or Nashville, and go move to Africa. He may be calling some of you to do that, but I'm not talking about a literal move forth with your possessions, but there's a go forth that God is calling to you. There's a go forth that he wants to speak deeply through his spirit into your heart, into your soul. Jesus' invitation is that we leave all that we're trusting in, that we leave our security, our identity, our self-salvation projects, and we follow him. I love what Mandy said earlier. She said, for some of you, it's just a little step. It's just a baby step. That's okay. I go forth for you this morning. You may just mean, I, I don't know how much I really trust him, but I'm just going to just do, do this right here. I don't know what God is calling you to go forth from. I will say this, the entry point into covenant relationship with God is always faith. It's not working harder. It's not getting better at being a, Christian. It's not being a better church goer. It's not giving more money. It's not getting real righteous. It's not like starting all these spiritual disciplines for the sake of becoming this person that God, you think, wants you to be. The entry point or the continual point in covenant relationship with God is always faith. It's always trust. That's this kind of step that God is calling you to, is deeper trust. Remember, God did not choose Abram because of his lifestyle or his righteousness. He looked down and saw a man that would believe him. We get confused on this. For some of you, you actually don't really know what it means to be in true relationship with God because you've been trying to work for relationship your whole life. Here's the call to you this morning is just trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ on your behalf. He died for you. He was raised for you. He did it for you. You trust in him. You receive new life. That's what the gospel is. For others of you, you 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 began your Christian journey that way you're like I see that's how I get into heaven but I've lost kind of sight of this idea of trusting God and just stepping into deeper belief in the goodness of God as it relates to me because my circumstances have clouded the picture. That's the reality for some of you. Go forth for you may mean I don't understand the blackness that surrounds my circumstances I'm going to take a leap of st- a step of faith anyway. I'm just going to trust him in some kind of way. So Abraham's journey is our journey. We'll see this all throughout this series. Number two, trusting God requires dependency. Once Abram left his Beit Av in Mesopotamia, if God did not show up and provide for him as a new patriarch, Abram was going to die. He literally, I mean physically literally, was going to die. He was at the mercy of God's hand, of God's provision, to provide for him in this new land in this wilderness. And so you fast forward to 2015 and it strikes me that in our modern technologies and comforts, we've built a facade of independence. We don't think we need God anymore because we've got grocery stores and we've got 401ks and we've got emergency funds and we have entertainment and we have our lazy boy chairs and and we have substances and we have all these things that we just sort of go to to numb the pain to say, I don't really need... Radical, full dependence upon God? Dependency requires some risk, by the way. Abram is a great example for us. He risked everything according to a call. Why do we live differently than that? Finally, number three, trusting God makes sense even when it doesn't. It's the tagline of the series. We'll be talking about it a lot over the next four or five months. Trusting God makes sense even when it doesn't. What do we mean by that? It didn't make sense for Abram to put all his eggs in the basket of this, you know, one God, you know, this one God of, 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 among many, at least from Abram's cultural perspective, this polytheistic worldview, doesn't make sense for Abram to say, I'm going to decide that this is the one God, I'm going to put my life and my family's life in the hands of this God that has showed up to me that actually didn't really make a lot of sense culturally. What happened after that? God proved himself. God proved himself to actually be the real deal, the true God. God kept his promise. He gave Abraham a son. It took a long time. We'll talk about that later. He kept his promise. He built Abraham into a nation. He kept his promise. From that nation, he delivered a Messiah, a Christ. He kept his promise. That Christ brought in, ushered in a new era where all of us can experience the Holy Spirit, all of us who put our faith in Jesus Christ, day of Pentecost, the church era. And at some point in time, you were born. At some point in this grand story, the story of redemption, you were born. And now the call on your life is, do you trust Whatever the circumstances of your life, and some of you are just in circumstances where you're like, I, I don't, there's no way that this makes sense. Doesn't make sense. Do you trust? It's not about our circumstances. It's about his character. And going all the way back to Abraham, we have 4,000 years of redemptive history to look on and see a God who keeps his promises despite circumstances that don't make sense. And so if you don't believe that God will keep his promises, even if you have to wait a long time, some of you, you won't get in this life what you long for. But you will get it. You will receive what has been promised. Just like Abraham. And if you don't begin to sort of have your faith strengthened by hearing this story, then you're not reading this text with any kind of faith With any kind of integrity to what's happening here, God shows up. God keeps his promises. We're going to see that over and over again in the life of Abraham. Your circumstance this morning may not make sense. Trusting God always makes sense. I want us just to respond with a song. There's a song that you all, that we sang last week here, that is really, I think, going to become a theme song. For this series, And I want to read you these words before we sing it because I really want to ask you to engage with these words. If you can muster a little bit of faith, even mustard seed sized faith to say these words and meet them this morning. Hear the words, the Lord our God is ever faithful, never changing through the ages. From this darkness, for some of you, this darkness means your circumstance where you can't see up from down. From this darkness, he will lead us. And forever, we will say, You're the Lord, our God. Bow your heads with me. Father, we prepare our hearts to respond to your word. And we've chosen a song that we believe expresses your call for us to depend upon you, to cry out belief and faith. And Father, I recognize that for some in this room, they don't feel like they've got it. But the good news is, Father, it's not up to them. Even the faith to believe is a gift from you. So I pray, Father, would you plant that seed deep in the hearts of the men and women in this room right now, in my own heart, that we would sing together and proclaim together that you are our God, that you will lead us from the darkness that we're in. And Father, I pray for us as a body that we would not be so presumptuous as to think that the moment we pray this prayer, we're going to feel and and receive everything we hope for and long for and just our lives are going to suddenly be this complete blessing. Father, the promise you gave to Abram was a promise that he had to sit with and he had to wait and he had to wrestle and he had to struggle, but this is the life that you've called us to. This is the true Christian life. Father, we call out to you, we experience your presence even now, but we long for the day that we will see you face to face, that we will be with you, that we will talk to you, that we will receive your embrace. We long for the land that won't be broken, that won't be cursed. We long for the land with the people of God, where all of us will be calling upon your name together. We long for this place that is yet to come. Help us to travel well here in the meantime as we gather together to call upon the name of the Lord every week and in small groups in between, would you be honored by our faith in the great name of our Savior, our Messiah, our Christ, who is Jesus. We pray these things. Amen.